Hey everyone, and welcome to the Fine Poetry Podcast. My name's Fina. This week we've got our last listener poem, at least for a bit. After this, I'm going to return to the many, many poetry collections I've got in my bookshelf. And we'll maybe be entering a turf where I feel a bit more secure. It's been quite scary to read poems by listeners and poems by people I know. It's one thing talking about poems by a poet who has published a collection or who's relatively well known. And it takes on an entirely different dimension if you're talking about poems by people you care about. And I so wanted to do those poems justice and I was very afraid with every episode that I wouldn't. Feedback has been (laughs) good though so far. So I will attempt today to engage with the final listener poem. This was sent in by Hilde Jürgensen. Hilde Jürgensen is a 30-something poet, multilingual translator and photographer. Originally from Norway, she has traveled around most of Europe searching for a place to call home and finally wound up in Cardiff, Wales, where she currently lives. She's inspired by literature, people, music, fashion, films, and nature, most prominently the sea. Hilda's poem is called Hardanga. As it emerges from the tunnel, the darkness becomes spring. The winter seems to have lifted, absconded, the snow increasingly absent as we appear head on by the fjord. Like we're barging straight into it, but we twist and screech and proceed to slide alongside as it stretches out like an arm, reaching out to the far sea between crowds of steep, choppy hillsides, adorned with nonsensically random bushes hanging on for dear life. Like there's always that need for a splash of green. These aren't real mountains, you see. They're barely tall enough to even matter within this landscape. They're babies with their trickling tear streams of pretty waterfalls and their gradient colors that make tourists lose their shit until the infinite multitude of nature disillusions them enough to crave the higher peaks, the real torrents, the overpriced cafe perched like a welcoming insanity at the edge of a cliff. And they wonder why there's even a fence. Health and safety ruins their experience. Like, where's the wilderness in that? But no one gets to condescend the fjord. It strides, prima donna-like, into the rigorous horizon. Bestowed its millinery confidence, a crystal-bright turquoise-speckled diva, who will not speak when spoken to, who holds court and acts solely on her own whims, who is stoic and quiet and firm as she lashes out. Inaudibly, and softly, but surely, as she laps at the shores of drowsy little towns, tucked away below the tree line, where churches gave way to gas stations and weaving mills and little wintage shops, repair shops, grocery shops, closed-down shops, an infinite number of attempted shops that would or will eventually and inevitably die when the tourists tire of moose-skin rugs and the ships tire of navigating the ridiculously shallow, narrow waterways. Now, 
Only the steeples remain, the brick and the cross, and the occasional smoke. Someone's determined to persist here, for now, by the fjord. To us, this fjord is a map, not a terminus, a temporary treat en route, as the train advances unflappably on course. A blatant, no-holds-barred snake along the silky azure thread that guides and nourishes and reminds me. This, soon, in the not-too-far-away distance, this thing that beckons, those horizon-scattered lights I can barely make out. As the speaker's system announces our imminent arrival into a slightly larger, not-yet-dying town, distinguished by its landscape anchored in water, made familiar by this still-resting old friend, quietly striking upon even the sleepiest heart. This is also home. This piece is the second piece we've had on the podcast, I think, that is very, very connected to nature. I'm thinking back to Mary Oliver right now, who speaks about the seaside and where we discussed confiding in the sea and we discussed the vastness of nature and the mystery of nature as well. This poem is about a fjord, and reading it, I sort of felt four movements in the poem. Here's the first part of the first movement. As it emerges from the tunnel, the darkness becomes spring. The winter seems to have lifted, absconded, the snow increasingly absent as we appear, head on by the fjord, like we're barging straight into it, but we twist and screech and proceed to slide alongside as it stretches out like an arm, reaching out to the far sea. What I think you feel from the beginning of the poem is the swift movement that reflects the train journey that is described. There is a train entering a fjord and the speakers on the train looking outside. The train emerges from a tunnel and suddenly everything is light. There's less snow and suddenly you're facing the fjord and you're almost sure you're going to drive into it but the train turns and continues to run alongside the fjord and it stretches out so far and reaches for the sea. So we've got this very swift intro of vastness and speed and a confrontation with something big and beautiful. In the second movement, we're introduced to other things that reside in the fjord, tourists, because these aren't real mountains, you see. They're barely tall enough to even matter. Within this landscape, they're babies with their trickling tear streams of pretty waterfalls and their gradient colors that make tourists lose their shit until the infinite multitude of nature disillusions them enough to crave the higher peaks, the real torrents, the overpriced cafe perched like a welcoming insanity at the edge of a cliff. And they wonder why there's even a fence. Health and safety ruins their experience. Like, where's the wilderness in that? So the speaker comment on the hills, the hillsides along the fjord. 
how you could see them as a gateway for the tourist, a gateway mountain, so to speak. They climb the smaller mountains and appreciate the colors and the waterfalls and the infinite multitude of nature. But then this disillusions them and they start to crave higher mountain peaks, real torrents of water pouring down. And of course, because it's tourism, the overpriced cafe. And I really like this image. The overpriced cafe perched like a welcoming insanity at the edge of a cliff. And they wonder why there's even a fence. Health and safety ruins their experience. Like, where's the wilderness in that? which is a very apt comment about tourism, searching for the wild and the beautiful and the untouched, but at the same time thinking, oh, I hope there's a gift shop. I hope there's a cafe. Thinking of myself, I am definitely guilty of this because I love a good gift shop, a museum gift shop especially. There's this temptation, this commercial temptation to remember your trip by buying a small souvenir or this temptation to spend a little longer at this place that you find so beautiful, even if this means having an overpriced latte in a cafe that's filled with tourists. But somehow it just seems a mandatory part of the experience, doesn't it? And it's really interesting how the speaker describes the tourists starting to lose their shit at the beauty of these baby mountains, but how once they've looked their fill, they start craving more and higher peaks, which is maybe not only an image for nature and tourists, but for humans in general. If there's something new, we're attracted to it. It's fascinating. We want to spend so much time with it until we get bored and move on to the next and bigger thing. But here's what happens in the third movement. But no one gets to condescend the fjord. It strides, prima donna-like, into the rigorous horizon. The fjord is mighty, and the fjord doesn't care whether tourists move on from it to a more exciting destination. The fjord is the fjord, it is itself. If you can say that nature might have a sense of pride, this fjord has it. It doesn't need humans to walk up its hills or, or build pricey cafes. The fjord would be fine without them, probably even better. But there are people who would not be fine without the fjord. Because the fjord touches at the shores of drowsy little towns tucked away below the tree line, where churches gave way to gas stations and weaving mills and little village shops, repair shops, grocery shops, closed-down shops, an infinite number of attempted shops that would or will eventually and inevitably die when the tourists tire of moose-skin rugs and the ships tire of navigating the ridiculously shallow, narrow waterways. The fjord attracts people. People who come there to make a living, people who have lived there for a long, long time and who have adapted to the tourists and who make their living by accommodating tourists, by selling souvenirs, selling food, selling gas. 
as it happens with so many small towns and villages, they get increasingly smaller and it's getting harder for people to stay there because work is in the cities and tourism follows the seasons. And so there's this very apt image where churches gave way to gas stations and weaving mills and little village shops, repair shops, grocery shops, closed down shops, an infinite number of attempted shops that would or will eventually and inevitably die when the tourists tire of moose skin rugs. So there's the sense of something traditional and something local turned into a souvenir for people to take home with them, but maybe that is not something that can be sustained. And for a moment, things seem quite bleak, but that's when we move into the fourth movement. Now only the steeples remain, the brick and the cross and the occasional smoke. Someone's determined to persist here for now, by the fjord. To us, this fjord is a map, not a terminus, a temporary treat en route, as the train advances unflappably on course, a blatant, no-holds-barred snake along the silky azure thread that guides and nourishes and reminds me. This soon, in the not-too-far-away distance, this thing that beckons, those horizon-scattered lights I can barely make out. As the speaker system announces our imminent arrival, in the slightly larger, not yet dying town, distinguished by its landscape, anchored in water, made familiar by this still resting old friend, quietly striking upon even the sleepiest heart, this is also home. In the last movement of the poem, the speaker strikes a more personal chord. It's one of the few mentions of a we or an I in the poem. Those horizon-scattered lights I can barely make out. Suddenly the speaker has retreated within themselves and is looking out the window and anticipating their arrival into a slightly larger, not-yet-dying town. And this town is anchored in the fjord. This is what makes the town familiar. The still-resting old friend quietly striking upon even the sleepiest heart. So a town by the edge of the fjord, which amazes and strikes you anew every time you see it. And the speaker ends the poem with, this is also home. For me, the poem is a reflection on a place that's very familiar, a place that's beloved, but that you've learned to see critically almost. The fjord is beautiful and mighty and the speaker obviously connects great love to it but there's also the commentary on tourism and consumerism little towns that die because tourists have moved on or towns that maybe die because people move on to the city to get work to move to bigger towns and the sense of sadness that comes with towns that are slowly shrinking or even dying and then in the end, this return to something familiar, friendly, something that you've missed, something that makes you remember this is also home.
And knowing what Hilda said in her introduction, that she is originally from Norway but has moved around a lot and na is now living in Cardiff, and speaking as someone who has also lived in Cardiff, actually, but also lived in a country that is not my home country, or even just someone who moved to a different city when I graduated from school, I understand this feeling of coming to a place that you've known all your life and that you still find beautiful but you see it different now that you've been away and it's this interesting struggle of you of viewing this place that was once your whole world and suddenly it's changed but it's also still home and it's at the same time quite sad because you can see the problems maybe that exist in the place where you come from and you also still feel grounded there and you feel home there and it gives you a bit of longing maybe for times as they were maybe remembering how it was to grow up there in German we distinguish between two words for home Zuhause and Heimat. And Zuhause can mean different things, but mostly it's the place you live right now. It's when you say, oh, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm just going home. Meaning to your flat, to your house. Whereas Heimat is a much bigger word that refers to a place that you feel deeply connected to, a place where you feel your roots are. And that doesn't have to be the place where you're born, but it often is, and it often refers to that. And I think the poem refers to that sense of Heimat as well, of having found a Zuhause, a home in a different country, but still knowing where your roots lie and returning there to remind yourself of that. Hilda, thank you so much for sending in your poem, and sorry for making you wait so long for this episode to air. Hi everyone, this is Fina and I'm talking to you on the 30th of March 2020. The episode you just heard uh, was recorded several months ago while I was still finishing up my degree, writing my dissertation and was feeling stressed in all kinds of ways. Now that I'm finally done editing it, the world has become wacky in so many other kinds of ways. So I just wanted to put this little announcement here at the end of the episode. It's been rough and it will continue to be rough for most of us, I think. All of us. And I hope you're staying safe as much as you can. I hope you're holding up okay. I will be trying to put out more episodes just to keep us busy and um, yeah I'm sending you all a big a big big online hug we can do this y'all and I'll talk to you soon bye